And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 12. Acts 12. If you're visiting with us this week, uh, my name is, is Levi. I'm the pastor here. And I expect I'm going to be a bit more reserved today because I, I injured myself on my week off. I injured myself reading a book, and, which uh, is just life now, I guess, 33. And uh, Friday and Saturday, like yesterday and the day before, I was bedridden for the first half of the day because I couldn't, I could barely chew on uh, like a pancake and swallow it. My neck and my shoulder were so messed up from reading a book. And I woke up this morning better-ish. And so I just want to, I thank God that I'm, I'm like this. It's, it's so good, but I'm also going to keep my arms below here and, not, and try not to go too extreme. And I feel very ordinary. I feel very ordinary today. And I'm going to use that as a segue into this passage. Because sometimes we despise the ordinary in our culture. And I don't know that that's unique to us. In fact, I know it's not unique to us because it was true in the Bible. You know, when, when God told them to look for a king, what, what's the first thing they look for? They look for the tallest, strongest, most handsome man they can find. That's the guy who should be a king. So this, is, this goes back to the Bible. We do this in our own politics, right? Who's got the best hair? Who can make the best one-liners? Who presents best on television? Those are usually the folks who wind up getting the, the votes. And in our personal lives, of course, we're looking at social media and and everybody's so, you know, dolled up and well-presented. And, and everybody's just, you know, they got the perfect family and the perfect vacation and the perfect thing. And, it, and we look at our own lives and we become very discontent quite easily. You know, because it all just feels so terribly ordinary. My ordinary life and my ordinary family and my ordinary job. We hate the ordinary. But this morning, I would love for you to see in our text that we serve a God who delights to use the ordinary to do extraordinary things. This is one of the things that, as I praise God and worship God, this is one of the things that really stirs my heart. The way that he works so, so opposite to the way that you might expect him to work. He uses those ordinary things. The ordinary church services, like this one on this ordinary Sunday. Um, ordinary Bible reading and preaching and listening and studying. Ordinary men and women, and as we'll see in our text, ordinary prayer and ordinary prayer meetings. God uses these seemingly mundane things to transform the world. That's what he does in his word, and that's what he does in our lives, and we've, we've seen it. And so this morning, as we come back and we see it afresh, I, I pray that God would open our eyes to see and remember, because I, I dare say we often forget. We often forget what God can do with the ordinary. So look with me now to Acts chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 17 this morning. So I hope you have that open now. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. 
and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And it's an extraordinary story. Extraordinary lows, extraordinary highs. And, but hidden in the extraordinary, there's, there's something quite ordinary that we will be spending our time considering. But first, the context. I want to consider the, the, the scene that's in front of us. You know, our minds, I would assume right now, if I were to poke you and say, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the angel. You're thinking about how crazy that was. But before that rescue, there was a pretty significant tragedy. You almost fly right by it in verse 2. It says, he killed James the brother of John, with the sword. So this is, you know, we just, we skim past and we were, you know, we didn't, we don't know James and so we're not really emotionally affected by that, but they killed James. They knew James. James was one of the disciples. In fact, he was one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. This was like, these are the guys who were closest to Jesus. In fact, James was a robust guy. James and his brother John, Jesus affectionately referred to them as the, the sons of thunder. You don't get a nickname like that if you're a, you know, a passive sheep. This is a guy with a big personality. In my head, as I was picturing it, I, I just think of a guy like a Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul Carter up the road. You know, big personality, the kind of guy you want to be around him. He's the, the life of the party. He's a son of thunder, right? A man of courage and conviction. This is James. They know this brother. They love this brother. He's their teacher and their friend. And he's beheaded. And, and this pleased the Jews, the next verse says. It pleased the crowd. So you can imagine the church hiding and, and lamenting that, that James has been taken. And then suddenly they hear this roar. The crowds in the streets. And it's, it's bustling around the town. This good news that James, is, James has been beheaded. The church is devastated. And, and in this church is John, the other son of thunder. Right? So his brother was beheaded in the city. It just... One verse, we fly by it. But this church has just experienced an extraordinary tragedy. And then on top of that, when Herod sees that the crowd, the crowd loved it when I killed James, he arrests Peter. And so now, that, now this church, while they're grieving, while they're lamenting James, now Peter is gone too. So they're in a desperate plight. 
And Herod is bound and determined that he's going to hang on to Peter because he saw how much credibility he got with James. Well, here's, Peter's like the leader of the group. So he, he assigns not one squad, not two, not three, but four squads to guard Peter. Each of these squads is made up of four guards. I'm not a mathematician. That's 16 guards for, for lowly Peter. He's got his eye on him. And through the night shift, they'll have two guards in the prison with him side by side as he's chained to the wall. And then they'd have two guards outside making sure nothing happens. And every two hours, another four would sub in and then another two hours. So you've always got guards on the alert. He's determined that he's going to make a spectacle of Peter. And what is the church going to do in the face of such a terrible trial? Well, this simple, unremarkable, downright, ordinary detail that we find in verse 5. Look there again. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So behind all the extraordinary details of this story, the extraordinary tragedy, the extraordinary rescue, there's this ordinary prayer meeting. And I want to consider that in our time this morning. An ordinary prayer in an extraordinary trial. And I want to pull out five details, five lessons from this story. The first thing that we see Again, quite ordinary. We see that they prayed as a first response. That almost seems so, so mundane that you wonder if it even needs to be said. And yet, and yet, as I reflected on my own life, I thought, it sure does. They prayed first. And this is a pattern that we see again and again in the book of Acts. We've seen it thus far, and disclaimer, we're going to see it again and again. Luke keeps drawing our attention back to these scenes, and in the midst of these scenes, he keeps drawing our attention to the fact that the church comes together and they pray. That is their knee-jerk reaction when the trials come their way. Listen, when crisis strikes, we instinctively turn to the place where we expect to find some semblance of an answer. Isn't it true? It's like my kids, when they, when they get hurt, they scrape their knee, they instinctively jump up, and they don't run to you, do they? Truth be told, they don't run to me. They run right past, they run right to mom, because they know that that's the place where I'm going to get some kind of solution for this crisis right here on my knee. And we don't really grow out of it, right? Instinctively, we're all of us, we turn somewhere immediately when crisis strikes. And so I'll just ask you a question, I'd invite you to think about it for a moment, Where do you turn when the big trials hit or the little trials? Where's the the first place? What's your instinct in that moment? And I would suspect for many of us in the room, something's revealed in our hearts, isn't it? Because we find that instinctively we often turn to ourselves. I turn to my strength, my plans. Immediately I'm thinking, how do I solve this? And so my, I get stressed and I get anxious because I feel the need that I have to be the one to fix this. And I lie in my bed and I run through 5,000 scenarios trying to figure out how I'm going to fix this. You know, eventually I pray. But where do I turn first? You know, some of us, even less helpfully, we, we, we just get angry. You know, we, we turn to ourself, but we turn to ourselves, the seven-year-old version of ourself, where I'm like, if I just slam my fist enough, if I just raise my voice enough, then maybe I can make people do what I want them to do. Maybe I can make it right. And we throw our temper tantrums. Or, or, or we jump into, you know, maybe more resourceful, we jump into our politics. Right? And we, we start with the trying to sway opinions and turn votes. And we try to, we try to put all of our, our mechanisms in play. And, and, that, and that's our first instinct. Or perhaps our first instinct isn't to turn to anything. It's to, it's to escape. And there's probably some of, some of us in the room too, right? 
our first instinct is to just get away from life. And I'm going to numb myself with some of the big stuff, like the drugs and the alcohol, and some of the stuff that we actually tell ourselves is okay, like, like the entertainment or the, the overeating, or, or we go back under the covers. And we're hiding from the world. Our video games, right? This little fake world where everything's in control, and it helps me to forget that this real world is out of control, and I don't have a clue what to do. Where do you turn? Now, I ask that as someone who myself sees that I've got some bad inclinations in my first instinct. This church... They turn to the Lord first. And we know as Christians, we know that's the right answer, right? If I were to put out a quiz and say, where should we turn first, Christian? I'm not teaching you anything new. You would say we should turn to the Lord first. We know this. But I wonder if, if we know this in our hearts. And, I, and I, it's great because if, if something's being exposed in you right now, you just bring it to the Lord. And we ask for Him to, to change our hearts. That we would see in Him a worthiness, a strength, a power, a love that we would, we would learn to run to him like my kids run to their mom. That we would come to him. Right? Because he's there. He's powerful. He's ready. Martin Luther, he once wrote, This we must know, that all our safety and protection consists in prayer alone. We're far too weak to cope with the devil and all his might and all his forces arrayed against us trying to trample us underfoot. Listen, this line's great. Therefore, since we're small and the devil is big and we got real problems, spiritual problems, therefore, we must carefully select the weapons with which Christians are to arm themselves in order to stand against the devil. We must carefully select the weapons with which Christians are to arm themselves. You know, that is a timeless quote because I'll tell you, we could have avoided so much embarrassment through the centuries if Christians would have held on to that. So much tragedy, boy, the holy wars would look a little bit different, right? If we had armed ourselves with the right weapons, right? The inquisitions probably would have looked a lot different if we had armed ourselves with the right right weapons. I would argue that our social media right now, over the last three years, would have looked an awful lot different if Christians had armed ourselves with the right weapons. The Apostle Paul, a man not unfamiliar with trials and tribulations, wrote to this church in Philippi from prison. Hear that? He's in prison, and he was imprisoned unjustly. He shouldn't have been in prison. And he wrote to them, and what did he say? He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. My heart's like, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, turn to prayer first in everything. It it works. He works. He changes things. He changes you. He guards your heart. He guards your mind. When extraordinary trials come our way, Redeemer City Church, let us be a people who turn to prayer first. Now, is there a time for all the rest? You bet. You bet there is. Of course there is. Of course, there's a time for working. There's a time for planning. There's even a time for politicking. All of that stuff, of course. But as Christians, we need to have a different first instinct. That's the challenge that we see here, modeled for us. Second, so they prayed first, but then we see, and they prayed earnestly. They prayed earnestly. We see that in verse 5. And then again, in verse 12, we find them, and they're praying late into the night. This is like like an all-night prayer meeting. These folks mean business. They are earnestly praying for their brother Peter. 
praying for God to, to move, for God to work. Now, did they know what they were praying for? Like, did they know how God was going to solve this? I don't. And later on, I would suggest they probably didn't because they were pretty surprised by what God did. But they knew that they needed to turn to him. And so they're asking and they're pleading. And Al Mohler once wrote, and I think this is helpful. He says, our theology is never so clearly displayed before our own eyes and before the world as in our prayers. I believe that's true. Now, in the context when, when he wrote that, he was referring particularly to the content of our prayers. You know, the things we say, the things we ask for, what we expect from God. Uh, but I would add to that, not just the content of our prayers, but also the, uh, the, whole, the manner of our prayer. Uh, our whole approach to God says something to ourselves and to the world about what we believe about him. It says something to our kids when they see mom and dad turn to God first. It says something to the onlooking world when they look in and they see a church in crisis, but they see a church that is pleading earnestly with God. And when I look at this church, what am I learning about their theology? Well, I could tell you, these people obviously believe that they serve a big God. And they believe that they serve a God who cares. They believe He's big because they're asking Him for help. I mean, I want you to notice that they're not making a plan here about how, they, you know, like, how are we going to protest Herod? How are we going to show Herod that this is going to be a costly political move? And nobody's making a plan about how are we going to, how are we going to bake a, a nail file into a cake so that he can get out of those chains? Nobody's, nobody's like, how are we going to bribe one of these? There's 16 guards. Who's the weak link? How are we going to, nobody's doing that. They're turning to God. Why? Because they believe that they serve a big God and that he is, in fact, the answer to this problem. And they must believe that he cares because they keep coming to him. Right? They, they're coming to him consistently, earnestly pleading with him because they believe that they serve a big God who cares. And I would say they're praying exactly the way that Jesus taught us to pray. So I want to turn to Luke 18. Just You can flip backwards in your Bible. I'd love for you to see this in the text if you can. So flip back past the book of John to Luke. Luke 18. As the last of you are, are making your way there, Luke 18, Jesus is teaching his people, people like us. Beginning in verse 1, Luke 18, verse 1, and he told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, meaning a bad judge, a wicked judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I'm a wicked judge, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus told this parable to the effect that it would, he would teach us to pray and to persist. What's the point of this story? The point of this story, Jesus is saying, is keep praying. Keep 
pressing. Keep persisting. He loves you. He loves you. That judge in the story, he did not love the lady. He was an awful judge. But she kept coming, and even that wicked judge, just because she kept coming, he's like, fine, I'll give you what you want. Well, if that's what happens with a wicked judge and a lady he doesn't love, then what do you think it's like when you come to your heavenly Father who loves you, and you again and again bring this petition, and you plead with him? Jesus says, he hears you. But then he, he finishes, but will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a people who pray earnestly? Does he find it here? We, uh, we saw this when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know if you were with us during the Lent series, but Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed. And he prayed and prayed, and he had sweat drops of blood. And one of the things that we observed in that sermon, and I won't preach it again, was that there is a form of prayer that is work. There is, you know, there's a form of prayer that, that is just receiving from the Lord. Right? Sometimes we pray, and it's just like the breeze rushes through, and God is just filling us with faith and encouraging us. And that's... That is true, right? But then there is also a form of prayer that we find in the Bible where it is, it is effort. It's, it's earnest. It's striving late into the night. It's Jesus with sweat drops of blood while the disciples are fast asleep. He's pressing in in prayer. And here this church is pressing in in prayer. And my question for us is when is the last time that we earnestly prayed about anything? And at first I thought, well, you know, maybe, we just, maybe you don't have any trials in your life. Maybe we don't have the kinds of things that would so urgently press us in. But then I thought, I don't, I don't think that's true because each of us, we have loved ones that are lost, loved ones that are on a road to hell, apart from a work of God, changing their hearts. Like we, we, each of us have urgent things that we could be earnestly praying for and pressing in for. I, I wonder if we've ever learned to flex this muscle, right? To press in like the persistent widow and to say, God, I am here again. Save my brother. I am pleading with you, and I'm pleading with you all night long. Would you save this city? God, I am, I am on my knees, and I'm not getting up off my knees. I, I have got to have your attention. And of course, we have his attention. That's what's so unique about this. It's not as if like, you know, we whip ourselves and we get and he hears us any differently. But there's something about when we earnestly come before the Lord, there's something about that the Lord meets us in and, and, and responds to. I don't understand the mystery, and yet I do see it in Scripture. And I see that this church prayed earnestly, late into the night. I pray that we would learn how to use that muscle ourselves. Now, third, they prayed first, and they prayed earnestly. And then third, we see it, and they prayed together. And again, this seems almost so mundane as not to mention, but I'm going to mention it. We see in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Not just by one or two, not just by his friends, but by the assembly, the people of God together praying. In verse 12, we see when he comes out and it's late at night, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where what? Many were gathered together. And we're praying. Now, the church in Jerusalem at this point was made up of thousands of people. So this wasn't the entire congregation in this house. Like what we see here is a prayer meeting. This is a, this is a large group of people who are committed to lifting up their brother Peter in prayer. And they came together. And we've said this before in the series, but I'll say it again. I think it's worth repeating. There's something special about the people of God praying together. And I... 
couldn't put my finger on it, but there's something about when we come together and we pray, God moves. And now it's not to say that there's no room for private prayer. Of course there is. I mean, just we look no further than to Jesus' example. And when you read through the Gospels, one of the things that should strike you is how often Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, gets away from the crowd and spends a a morning in prayer by himself. Gets away from the crowd and and goes out late at night so that he can pray by himself. So of course there's a place for private prayer. Don't, Don't hear me otherwise. Of course. But it's interesting in the New Testament that when these trials and these tragedies strike, the church always comes together to pray. Like that's, that is a pattern that Luke is intentionally preserving for us. We see it here. We saw it back in chapter 4 when Peter was in prison the first time. The church came together and they were praying. We're going to see it again in chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison. The, the people come together and they pray together and God does something special when his people come together. And I don't know why that is. My, uh, my friend Tim Kerr, I've told you this before, I think, but maybe you haven't heard it, so I'll share it again. He's, he said that prayer is kind of like a greenhouse. So here in Canada, um, there are just some things that you can grow in a greenhouse that you can't grow anywhere else right? because of our climate, because of the harsh conditions. There are just certain things that if you tried to plant it in your garden, it wouldn't work. It would never, it would never live, never flourish. But in the greenhouse, you walk into the greenhouse, and boy, there are things growing there that uh, you're not going to find outside of the greenhouse. And he said, prayer is kind of like that. And I, would, and I would add, corporate prayer, praying together with God's people, is kind of like that. There are certain things that happen there, certain things that grow, certain things that happen in your mind, in your heart, that, that don't happen anywhere else. And it's true. And if, if, if you've spent time in prayer and you've spent time praying with God's people, you can attest to this. Now, I don't, I don't know why that is. But, you know, I, I recognize that we're a very individualistic culture. That's true. We all live in it. It's not an indictment. It's just reality. We, we like to fly solo. We like to be lone wolf. We like to do everything by ourselves. And so why not just do prayer by myself? Like, why, why do I need to pray with others? That's probably a narrative that's in some of our minds. Let me just point you to a couple reasons why praying together is so special. When we pray together, we obey Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen which is the one that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man, one woman sharpens another. You ever prayed with somebody and you come out of that prayer meeting and you're like, I think I'm a changed person. <laughs> Just praying with that. So Emma Morrison was often the one who, when I would pray with Emma, I would come out just full of faith. She just sharpened me. And, and many of you have this effect on me as well. And it's... It's something that happens, and it only happens when you're praying together with God's people. When we pray together, we obey Galatians 6.2, which calls us to bear one another's burdens. Have you ever had the experience of praying with someone, and suddenly they just break down, and they're sobbing, and they can't get the words out, and you have the blessed privilege of just putting your arm around their shoulder, trying to put words to this hurt, this pain. You're, you're bearing their burden. And, or perhaps you've been on the other side of that equation, and somebody's helped you to bear your burden. Or when we pray together, we obey Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, which calls us to inspire and stir up love and good deeds in one another. And you go into the prayer meeting and you're feeling like you're, you know, you're the worst Christian in the world and you're feeling like you know, you're just ticking the boxes. But you come out of that meeting and you're ready to storm hell with a water pistol. Something has happened. You've been stirred up. When we pray together, we obey Colossians 3.16 as we teach and admonish one another. When we pray together, we grow in the unity celebrated in Psalm 1. 33.1, how beautiful it is when the brothers dwell in unity together. 
It's hard to hold grudges with a person when you're sitting next to them and praying to God for them. Right? It's, it is. And by the way, when you're, I always tell couples when we're counseling them, when you're having an argument as a couple, it is a really helpful tool to, to stop your argument and to pray. Because whatever you're arguing about certainly feels really small and silly and inappropriate when you start talking to God. It's like that in a prayer group. You know, it's like, you know, Timmy's asked you to pray for, for this thing that's going on in his home, and you're sitting there and you're praying for Timmy. And, and you know what? As you're asking God to help Timmy, it's really hard for you in your heart to be like, but I'm still sick of this guy because he took my parking spot. Like those things, those things fade away. It, it unites the church when we pray together. And ultimately, when we pray together, we obey Romans 15, 5 to 6, as we glorify God with one voice. All these sweet things happen. And for some of you, you're nodding and saying, yes. And for some of you, you're saying, I've never experienced that was a huge fly coming right at me. I was about to call you to prayer right there. I wasn't afraid of the fly. Recharge. You should pray together. (laughs) You should pray together. If if, if I'm describing all this and you're saying, "I've, I've never experienced that, I've never stepped out, that seems so foreign to me, then I would just encourage you today. Try it. Pray with your spouse. Pray, boy, and sometimes that's a really tough first step, isn't it? Pray with your spouse. Pray with your kids. And you're, you're here and you say, you don't have a spouse, you don't have a kid, you don't have kids. Pray with your friends. Join a prayer group. Learn how to use this muscle because, as we see the pattern in Scripture, this is where God's people turn every time there's a crisis. And I don't think it's by coincidence that that's recorded for us. We need to learn how to pray together. So we pray first and we pray earnestly and we pray together. And that's all so important because there's this next detail that we see in the story, and that is this. Their prayers mobilized the angels. I'm excited to get here. You're probably wondering, are we going to get to that detail? Yeah. It's, I won't read it all over again. It's probably up on the screen. But what I want you to see is, look down at your Bible. Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was for him was made to God by the church. Then look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So you look at verse 5 and verse 12, and now look at everything in between. What do you find in between? This miraculous story about how God sent an angel to bring Peter out into freedom. And Luke didn't, didn't write this by accident. He's making like a prayer sandwich. right? He doesn't want us to miss the fact that this miraculous story that like captures our attention is the result, is God's answer to these, this prayer meeting that's blocking it in verse 5, verse 12, that's packaging it in. It's incredible. This ordinary prayer meeting mobilized an angelic rescue mission. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because we see it elsewhere in the Bible. Look, in the book of Daniel, a while back we preached through the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's praying and praying, and then an angel appears to him and Daniel falls on the floor as if dead. That seems to, angels appear to be horrifying, right? Because Daniel falls on the floor as if dead, and Gabriel says to Daniel, this angel, he declares, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you've set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. He heard you. Man, Daniel was in a really tricky spot. He was dealing with all kinds of really awful circumstances, you wonder how many times Daniel wondered, does God even hear me? He says, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. 
So, so the angel Gabriel is, is mobilized and sent to Daniel as a response to the prayers that Daniel's been lifting up. Actually, if you read the very next verse, verse 13 of Daniel chapter 10, it gets crazier because Gabriel says, now I'm a little bit late in getting here because this prince of Persia, some demonic force, he was withholding me. We were battling, we were struggling, I couldn't get by. But then the archangel Michael came and he helped me and then boom, now I'm here. And you read the story and you think, whoa, there is a whole spiritual dimension here that we're blind to. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's the clear testimony of Scripture. Our prayers mobilize angelic armies. We see that in Daniel. We see it here with Peter. And if that makes you squeamish, then I would argue you probably won't pray as boldly as you should then. I mean that. If, if you don't think about that, if you've never processed that spiritual battle that's going on all around us, you probably won't pray the way that you should. There is a form of Christianity, particularly in the Western world, that, that gives lip service to these aspects of theology, that gives lip service to the fact that there is a spiritual reality all around us, but that in practice all but ignores it. But our greatest heroes in the faith understood that we are in a spiritual war. Martin Luther, for example, wrote the beloved hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and we sing it. And we sing about these spiritual realities. He meant for us to sing this because he doesn't want the church to lose sight of this. In verse 3, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And then he turns his attention back to our enemy. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. So he's got this reality that there is a spiritual fight and there is a spiritual enemy and yet he's got this confidence because of what God's word has revealed. And in verse 2, he's got this other beautiful ground of confidence. He says, we don't need to be afraid because we have the king on our side. Lord Sabaoth, his name. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I wonder how many of us here sing Lord Sabaoth, his name, and have never stopped to ask, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean, Sabaoth? It's the Hebrew word for the hosts of heaven. So what we're singing is that we don't need to be afraid because the king is on our side and the king's name is the Lord of angel armies. And he is with us. And we sing that with boldness because that's exactly what we see here. You wonder if he wrote that song in light of Acts chapter 12. This reality ought to change the way that we pray. Now, let me say this just in case. This doesn't mean we should pray to angels. We shouldn't. Nowhere in the Bible does anyone pray to angels, so we don't do that. But what we do do is we pray to our great God with the confidence that He possesses every resource imaginable, including the hosts of heavenly hosts. All the angel armies are at His disposal. And He's for us. And He hears us as we pray. He listens. And as He said to Daniel, I've heard all of your words. And, and Gabriel said, and, and I'm here, actually, as a result of your words. Let us pray with boldness. And just pause. Can, one of the amazing, extraordinary details of this story that it would almost rush right past is the fact that God hears us at all. Like, that's the most miraculous detail in this whole thing. The fact that that, that God 
The God of angel armies. The God who, who created all things. The creator and sustainer of everyone and everything who is holy, holy, holy. The fact that he listens to us at all is the biggest miracle, isn't it? Like, who are we to have the ear of God? Who am I? I'm a, I'm a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. I have sinned. And my sin should separate me from God. I should not have the ear of God and neither should any of us in this room. And a lot of the times, isn't that what keeps us from praying? Because we feel so far from Him. We feel so unworthy to speak to Him. And yet, we're able to speak to Him because God sent His Son. And Jesus has taken our sin and removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. If we've repented and believed and put our trust in Jesus, not only are we saved, church, not only are we forgiven and are going to be able to come to heaven, but we also get to come to Him now in prayer. This is one of the blessings of grace. That we now have this great confidence that as we lift up our prayers to God, He hears us not because of how great your week was. He hears us because of Jesus, the perfectly obedient Son, who is seated at His right hand and right now intercedes for God's people. That's the miracle. And so these people, this room full of, of people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, are pleading with God and He hears them because they are washed by the blood of Jesus. What a gift. And when this church knelt down to pray, an angel blinded guards, unshackled chains, opened prison doors, raised an iron gate, and led Peter right back to this seemingly ordinary prayer meeting. Why did he record the story? Because there's no earthly king that can thwart the will of God. And it's important that we see that and believe that. There are no prison doors that can restrain the gospel and its advancement. God holds the keys The gates of hell will not prevail against the church because the God of angel armies is our shield and He fights for us. And we should pray as if we believe that to be true. Luke means for us to see that. These believers did. And their prayers mobilized the angels. And yet, while it would be tempting to end the sermon right here, I want to close with one last observation from this story. And that is that their prayers were not all answered in the same way. This story presents us with one of the challenges of prayer, right? The, the mystery of the providence of God. In the same passage, we see tragedy and triumph, sorrow and salvation. The story, as we said, it begins with the beheading of James, and we rush past that detail. But that was a tragedy. But then you shift gears, and it's, I'm going to read this because I just think that this is such a fun detail. It's such a glorious detail. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Now when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so he knocks at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, she says, who's there? He says, it's Peter. And she's, it's Peter. And she spins around, right? In her joy, she doesn't open the gate. He's an escaped convict in the street. She doesn't open the gate, but she runs in and she reports that Peter is standing at the gate. And they say to her, you are out of your mind, Rhoda. Not this again, Rhoda. But she kept insisting, it's so. He's there. And they keep saying, it's his angel. You're seeing things, Rhoda. But Peter continues knocking. Boom, 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 boom. You can hear this in the background. And when they open, they see him. And they're amazed. And motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, which in itself would have been so crazy. 
So Peter's like, you're never going to believe this, but I'm, li- I'm sleeping, and all of a sudden the room fills with light, an angel is there, and my chains fall off my hands. The guards are sleeping. I think I'm in a dream, so I'm just kind of casually walking. The, the prison door swings open, and well, we're never going to get past the gate. Well, the gate swings open. The guards are asleep. You'll never believe it. Have you ever had the experience when you're praying for someone, and they come to you the next day, and they say, oh, man, it was the wildest thing. You know, my, my, uh, my back pain, I... I was like complete. I could I couldn't even get out of bed. But then all of a sudden something clicked, and then at seven o'clock, I felt fine. It was the weirdest thing. And that person's like, "At seven o'clock, I was praying for you." I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Some of you have, surely. It's a it's a really remarkable thing. Well, that times a hundred right here, right? Peter comes to them. It's the craziest thing. You'd never believe what happened. And the church is like, "We were just praying. That's wild." This is immediately. This becomes everyone's favorite story. Who's in the room? Right? Immediately, every single one of them is, they're laughing. Every time they're at a party together, they're like, oh man, remember Rhoda? We're like, you're crazy, Rhoda. What do you know? Like, it, was, it was wild. Peter's out there in the streets. There's probably guards. Amazing he didn't get arrested twice. You know, they love this story. It's incredible. It, he captures all these little details. I think he means for us to come into the joy of this church. Beautiful, glorious. But you know, John's a part of this church too. And listen, John is overjoyed that Peter's delivered. I, I'm sure that he was overjoyed that Peter's delivered. But you've got to wonder if John's thinking, man, it would have been double sweet if my brother James had also walked through the door. You know? And everybody's laughing and like, this is the best. But you've, you've got a very real hurt here. And what do we do with that? Two apostles imprisoned unjustly by the same tyrant king, the same faith-filled church pleading for these brothers. One of them has his head severed from his body. One of them is released back into ministry. Here's the mystery of prayer. We catch another glimpse of the the providence of God. As as we pray, He always answers us. The Bible tells us he always answers us. And yet the reality is, and we see it here, that sometimes the answer to that prayer is yes. And sometimes the answer to that prayer is no. And sometimes the answer to that prayer is not yet. And and all of those answers in those moments are perfectly right and wise. In all things, God is still working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, just like he promised to. In all things, there's his perfect wisdom. So he's delivered James from his trial into glory. He delivers Peter from his trial into further service and ministry. And by the way, let's not forget that Peter eventually, church history tells us, he he eventually was killed for his faith. After years of fruitful ministry, we're told that he was crucified upside down. God was glorified in his purposes, in, in the yes and in the no. G. Campbell Morgan wisely helps us here. And here's what an old veteran pastor says when he thinks about this passage. There is infinite comfort in that. I love that he's seeing comfort here. I don't know if you're seeing comfort yet. I pray that we would. There is infinite comfort in that. The comfort of the revelation of the fact that the one who could deliver Peter and in wisdom did so was equally wise when he did not deliver James. The same God who opened the prison door allowed the sword to fall on James' neck while the same church prayed for both. And that can make prayer complicated. Sometimes we pray for healing and God heals someone. 
Other times we pray for healing and then we find ourselves together at that brother or sister's funeral. Sometimes we pray for that wayward child and they return and we celebrate them coming home to the church and other times we pray for that wayward child and they rebel right to the bitter end. And God in His unsearchable wisdom answers every single one of our prayers and yet we're reminded in this story He answers them differently. He's not a vending machine. Sometimes I think we want him to be that. You know, put in a loony, press this button, and the same thing will pop out every single time. He's not a vending machine. He's not a genie. Sometimes I think we want him to be that. Rub the lamp here and ask me for anything, and I will contort my will and change my plans to do whatever you want. He's not that. He is not a vending machine. He is not a genie. He is the Lord of hosts. He is good. He loves us. He cares. And apparently that's enough for us to know right now. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Or as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how does it all work then? Why does God answer some of my prayers? Yes, some of my prayers. No, why is it that sometimes things happen that seem to me to be the exact opposite of what God's will ought to be in this situation? How do, tie a bow around it. Put it all together. The secret things belong to the Lord. Luke did not record this story so that we could tie a neat little bow around our theology of prayer. He must not have. Because he's left some pretty significant questions. And why did he record this story? He recorded this story so that we would see and savor and marvel at the glorious God who has chosen, who has humbled himself to do extraordinary things in response to our ordinary prayers. He's recorded this story to fill us, not just the original readers, but to fill us with faith that we would come to God believing that he is wise and that he answers our prayers and that he will do exactly what is right. So let us not despise the small things, Redeemer City Church. In particular, let us not despise the ordinary prayer meeting. Let's pray first. Let's pray earnestly. Let's pray together. Let's pray to the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. And let's pray with humility, acknowledging that He doesn't always answer our prayers the same way. But He always answers our prayers. And He is good. To that end, let's pray together right now. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. And we just want to acknowledge in this place that you are good. You are good. And Lord, we're here, we're reading this story that these were real people. John really lost his brother James in that tragedy. Now, he was reunited in glory, but in this moment, he really lost his brother. These are real people. They had to really live through this, God. And, and yet, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from them. But God, as I preach now, as I pray, I think about the people in this room, and I know that they have real people in their lives that they're thinking about right now, God. Real prayers that they have pleaded with you for again and again and again. Lord, and there are people in this room who are celebrating the yeses, but then there are people in this room who are wondering if they've received a no, or if they're living in a not yet. And God, it's just, it's hard. 
It's hard. And I pray that you'd meet us in our waiting and in our longing. God, I pray that you'd fill us with faith, that we would pray like the persistent widow, because you're not a a wicked judge. You are our good father and you care about us. So we can ask and we can ask again and again and again, and we will. Lord, and I pray that you would teach us to pray with boldness and courage and confidence and, and that we would be a people who are turning to you first, Lord, and coming to you again and again. I pray that you'd cultivate that in us. Lord, and, and I, I don't pretend to know what kind of trials and tribulations will be coming our way in the years to come, but Lord, I do suspect that there will be some difficult days. And on those days, God, I pray that we would find ourselves a people who are, who are ready to come together earnestly in prayer just like this church that we see here. That it wouldn't be a foreign thing for us to pray late into the night, pleading with you on behalf of our brothers and sisters. God, we love you. And, and lastly, Lord, I just, I do thank you that you hear our prayers. I thank you that I am not speaking to a room of people right now. I'm speaking to the God of the universe. And I thank you that I can do that even though I have sinned and fallen short because you sent your son to make a way. So God, thank you for your mercy in opening a door for us to come to you And Lord, I pray that we would now, with great assurance and confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Lord, enable us to become increasingly a people of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?